0: Good morning and welcome to another episode of Kings and Queens, the podcast where we read, watch, play, and discuss history's favorite scream queens and literary kings of horror. I am your host, Nat, and this week we are diving into Chapter 9 of Stephen King's Holly. Last week we got a little more detail on Peter Stinky Steinman, one of the victims. Uh, we learned a little bit from his friends about his background and what may be going on there. So far there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not the Steinman case and the doll case are related, but I think if Holly keeps her mind open she may find that there's a connection there. Lord knows she would be the one to find it. If you have not already, I highly recommend going back to the beginning and reading all of the previous chapters with us. As a reminder, when you hear this sound, that means I have stopped reading from the text and am instead discussing thoughts, interpretation, things like that. When the sound replays, That means the mic is back to the author. So without further ado, let's begin chapter nine of Stephen King's Holly. Chapter nine, December two through 14, 2018. Part one, page 87. It's the Christmas season and along Ridge Road, residents are marking the season in suitably tasteful and subdued fashion. There are no lighted Santas, rooftop reindeer, or lawn tableau of the wise men looking reverently down at the baby Jesus. This has always been one of my biggest pet peeves passed down from my mother. But if if we're being biblically accurate here, the wise men did not arrive until Jesus was over two years old. So at what point in the manger scene would the wise men be present? There are certainly no houses tricked out in enough flashing lights to make them look like casinos. Such groceries may do for other neighborhoods in the city, but not for the genteel houses on Victorian Row between the College and Deerfield Park. Here there are electric candles in the windows, doorposts dressed in spirals of fir and holly, and a few lawns with small Christmas trees studded with tiny white bulbs. These are on timers that click off at 9 o'clock as mandated by the Neighborhood Association. On a personal note absolutely nothing to do with stephen king hoas are evil and i am hard pressed to be convinced otherwise there are no decorations on the lawn or the front of the brown and white victorian at 93 ridge road this year neither roddy nor m harris have felt spry enough to put them up not even the wreath on the door or the big red bow that usually perches atop their mailbox Roddy is in better shape than M, but his arthritis is always worse once cold weather arrives. And now that the temperature slides below freezing by most afternoons, he's terrified of slipping on a patch of ice. Old bones are brittle. Finally, and I think this is the first time in the novel, we do see an actual physical weakness in Roddy, a point of vulnerability that has not been present for the couple previously. Emily Harris isn't well at all. She now actually needs the wheelchair that is usually part of their capture strategy. Her sciatica is unrelenting, yet there's lights at the end of the tunnel. Relief is now close. I must say that's one of the few times I can expect a negative connotation to a phrase about relief being close to someone. The perspective of it really changes things. I mean with the sheer amount of foreboding that I feel as the reader. What relief is she looking for? Whose liver is it, or who is her victim? Her abductee. Their house has a dining room. All of the Victorians on Ridge Road have dining rooms, but they only use it on the occasions when they have guests, and as they move deeper into their 80s, those occasions are more occasional. When it's just the two of them, they take their meals in the kitchen. She supposes the dining room will be pressed into service if they have their traditional Christmas gathering for Roddy seminar students and the writing workshop kids, but that will only happen if they feel better. Finally, some more detailed information about the couple. I'll be honest, I did not expect them to be deep into their 80s at this point, um, which makes their plan of attack, their way of capturing people all the smarter because it requires fairly little physical effort on their end. We will, she thinks, surely by next week and perhaps as soon as tomorrow. She's had no appetite. The constant pain has taken that, but the aroma coming from the oven causes the smallest pang of hunger in her stomach. It's wonderful to feel that. Hunger is a sign of health. A shame the Kraslow girl was too stupid to know that. The Steinman boy certainly had no such problem. Once he got past his initial distaste, he ate like, well, like the growing boy he was. Oh, barf. Okay, there's so much to unpack, even in this one paragraph. Hunger is a sign of health. That seems to be a key focus for MN Roddy, is focusing on health, vitality, potentially immortality, I really can't tell yet, Um, and then she immediately follows it with a shame the Kraslow girl. Was too stupid to know that you know hunger is a sign of health does that imply that ellen oh wait no we know that ellen kraslow is dead roddy shot her in the chest that was one of the more brutal and i think out of the ordinary killings for the harrises extenuating circumstances i suppose and then when she talks about the steinman boy the growing boy that he is or was obviously was implies that he is no longer with us But the growing boy, was he under 18? When we think about the the teens that he was with, are we talking like a middle school boy? Sickening. And the variability in the subjects is interesting. The kitchen nook is humble, but Roddy has dressed the drum table overlooking the backyard with the good linen tablecloth and set two places with the Wedgwood china, the Luxian wine glasses and their good silver. Everything sparkles. Em only wishes she felt well enough to enjoy it. How dare these folks feel pity for themselves after doing everything that they've been doing for an unknown amount of time. She is in her best day dress. She struggled to put it on, but managed. When Roddy comes in with the carafe, he's wearing his best suit. She notes rather sadly that it bags on him a little they have both lost weight. Which is, she reminds herself, better than gaining it. You don't have to be a doctor to know that fat people rarely get old. You only had to look at the few colleagues of similar ages they still have. Some will be at their Christmas party on the 23rd, supposing they are well enough to have it. Roddy bends and gives her a kiss on the temple. How are you, my love? Well enough, she says, and presses his hand, but lightly, because of his arthritis. Dinner in a jiff, he says. In the meantime, let's have some of this. He pours into their wine glasses from the carafe, being careful not to spill. Half a glass for him, half a glass for her. They raise them in gnarled hands that were once, back when Richard Nixon was president, young and supple. They touched the rims, producing a charming little chime. To health, he says. To health, she agrees. This does appear to be kind of an unhealthy obsession with good health, which sounds stupid to say out loud, but if we're looking at a couple in their 80s with several comorbidities that not only make their life painful, but will age them and, and take their life a couple years earlier than if they did not have those diseases, it's unrealistic. Thank you, Trax. Their eyes meet over the glasses. His blue, hers bluer. And then drink. The first sip makes her shudder, as it always does. It's the salty taste underlying the clarity of the Mondavi 2012. Then she drinks down the rest, welcoming the heat in her cheeks and fingers. Even in her toes. The surge of vitality. Faint, like hunger pangs, but undeniable. Is even more welcome. A spot more? Is there enough? More than enough. Then I will. Just a little. He pours again. They drink. This time, Em barely notices the salty undertaste. Are you hungry, dear one? I actually am, she says, just a little bit. Then let Chef Rodney finish up and serve out. Save room for dessert. He drops her a wink and she can't help but laugh. The old rogue. The broccoli and carrot mix is steaming. The potatoes, mashed, easier on old teeth, are in the warmer. Roddy melts butter in a skillet He always uses far too much, but neither of them is going to die young. Then tilts in the plate of chopped onions and gets them frying. See, now this is so confusing to me because they can both acknowledge that they are old. Just plain and simple fact, they are elderly. And yet, they then acknowledge that they use too many fattening things or too much of a volume of fattening things like butter, claiming that not dying young is an excuse to do such behavior. So they won't cut down on butter for their health, but they absolutely will kidnap and kill people and feed their livers to other kidnapped people. Somebody make this make sense. The smell is heavenly, and this time her pang of hunger is stronger. As he stirs the onions, turning them so they are first transparent and then just slightly browned, he sings pretty little angel eyes, a song from the way back when. She remembers record hops when she was in high school, the boys in sports coats and the girls in dresses. She remembers doing the shake to D.D. Sharp, the Bristol Stomp to the Devils, the Watusi to Cannibal and the Headhunters, a name that would be considered very politically incorrect today, she thinks. For how frivolously this woman incorporates slurs both racial and otherwise, into her daily vocabulary. It's hysterical that she's judging a song for the name of the band that would now be considered politically incorrect. The hypocrisy would be laughable if it wasn't so plausible. Roddy takes their plates to the counter and serves out veg, potatoes, and from the oven the piece de resistance, a three-pound roast done to a turn he shows it to her simmering in its juices and a few herbs which are special durati and she applauds he carves the liver into slices dresses them with fried onions and brings the plates to the table now M finds herself not just hungry but ravenous eek they are eating the livers of their victims as well as feeding it to other victims slash She did mention that purchasing liver, it was an obscene price when they were complaining about it earlier, so potentially the victims are just the source of liver for them, but they use cheap store-bossed stuff when testing their subjects. I also know it seems nitpicky to call out each and every little detail that King throws in here, but he is notorious for teeny tiny, very subtle Easter Easter eggs within his Universe within the horror universe that he has created, so I'm curious about what these herbs are that are particularly special to Roddy. It could mean something. They eat at first without talking much, but as their bellies fill and they slow down, they speak, as they often do, of the old days and those who have either died or moved on. The list grows longer every year. Again, we're really highlighting the struggles of getting older without acknowledging the fact that they are older. I think they also don't want to acknowledge their own mortality. They don't want to admit that they will join that list at some point. More, he asks. They've eaten a good portion of the roast, but there's still plenty left. I couldn't, she says. Oh my goodness, Rodney, you've outdone yourself this time. "'Have a little more wine,' he says, and pours. "'We'll save dessert for later. "'That show you like is on at nine. "'Haunted case files,' she says. "'That's the one. "'How bad is your sciatica, dear one?' "'I think a little better, "'but I'll let you clean up and do the dishes, "'if you don't mind. "'I'd like to go through the rest of those writing samples.' "'I don't mind at all. "'The one who cooks must be the one who cleans,' "'my grandmother used to say. "'Are you finding anything worthwhile?' Em wrinkles her nose. Two or three prosaists who aren't downright terrible, but that's damning with faint praise, wouldn't you say? Roddy laughs. Very faint. She blows him a kiss and rolls away in the wheelchair. Chapter 9, Part 2, Page 90. Later, the timers along Ridge Road have turned off all the subdued Christmas lighting. Em is engrossed in haunted case files where tonight's psychic investigator is mapping cold spots in a New England mansion that looks like a decrepit version of their own house. She feels a bit better. It's too early to feel real relief from the liver and the wine. Or is it? That loosening in her back is definitely there, and the shooting pains down her left leg don't seem quite so vicious. I really like that King uses the exact same vocabulary to tie the two um the kind of intro to the chapter to versus where we are now the relief and i initially said at the beginning that 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 word relief somehow felt negative to us as the reader likely because we knew it was probably because of one of their victims and here king immediately draws our attention back to it to confirm yeah her relief is at the expense of somebody else the blender has been going in the kitchen but now it stops Roddy enters a minute later bearing two chilled sorbet glasses on a tray. He's changed to his pajamas, slippers, and the blue velour robe she gave him for Christmas last year. Here we are, he says, handing her one of the glasses and a long spoon, dessert as promised. He sits down beside her in his easy chair, completing the picture of a couple who has often been pointed out on campus as a good, nay, perfect example of romantic love's ability to endure. She raises her glass. Thank you, my love. Very welcome. What's going on? Cold spots. Drafty spots. She gives him a glance. Once a scientist, always a scientist. Very true. They watch TV and have their dessert, spooning up a mixture of raspberry sorbet and Peter Steinman's brains. Mary, Mother of God, he casually threw that in there, even reading it aloud to record. Knowing that I have already read through this chapter, it still caught me by surprise. I also love that this is what we're considering, science, is his horrific experiments on human life. And yet, he watches the case files, the haunted case files, and immediately becomes Mr. Skeptic. Chapter 9, Part 3, page 91. 11 days before christmas emily harris walks slowly but steadily up from the mailbox at 93 ridge road she climbs the porch steps with a fist planted in the small of her back on the left side but this is more out of habit than necessity the sciatica will return she knows that from sad experience but for now it's almost totally gone she turns and looks approvingly at the red bow on the mailbox i'll put the wreath up later roddy says she startles and looks around Creep up on a girl, why don't ya? He smiles and points downward. He's in his socks, silent but deadly. That's me. How's your back, dear one? Quite good, fine even. And your arthritis? He holds out his hands and flexes his fingers. Good on ya, mate, she says in a passable Aussie drawl. They took a trip to Oz shortly after their double retirement, rented a camper, and crossed the continent from Sydney to Perth. That was a trip to remember. He was a good one Roddy said wasn't he she doesn't need to ask who he's talking about he was although how long the effects will last neither of them know he is the youngest they've ever taken barely into puberty there's a great deal about what they've been doing that they don't know but Roddy says he's learning more each time also and to state the obvious survival is the prime directive and here I really have to ask as the reader, as a character in the story, is it obvious? Is it that obvious that survival is the directive for a couple in their eighties with comorbidities? And I think it does hit a lot harder with Peter Steinman, this quite literal child that they're talking about so flippantly. It is sickening. Emma agrees. There will be no more trips to Australia, probably not even to New York for their once-every-two-years Broadway binge, but life is still worth living, especially when every step isn't an exercise in agony. Anything in the paper, dear? He slips an arm around her shoulders. Nothing since the first item, and that was barely more than a squib. Just another runaway or a stranger who came upon a target of opportunity. What do you think about the Christmas party, dear one? Keep or cancel? She stretches on her toes to kiss him. No pain. Keep, she says. End of chapter nine. Yikes. It was a short chapter. I apologize, but this ended up being a longer episode. There was a surprising amount to unpack in so few words. In that last bit there, she talks about every step being an exercise in agony. At first, I initially thought that she was referring specifically to the agony, the physical agony of sciatica, which can be excruciatingly painful. I will warrant that. However, now, reading through it again, I do wonder if she is describing instead the agony of aging, something that, to non-diluted folks, is inescapable. Now I know storyline hopping is not everybody's favorite way to take in literature, but I love the way that King bounces back and forth to give us bits and pieces here and there of each aspect of the story as we try to figure it out ourselves as the reader as well. Thank you so much for joining me i love having you guys here with me to go through this uh don't forget to like and subscribe and just remember it's all a bunch of hocus pocus see you next week